Today, I want to talk about uh, Jesus the Revolutionary, and uh, uh, some of the stuff you hear is probably my life message, which means for you unfortunates who have been around my ministry since 2000, you've heard this gazillion times. You can come up and preach part of this. But this is my heart. This is what radiates out of me. This is why I'm in the ministry today. Even though if you step into the ministry, you have a thousand reasons to run right back out of it. Really, honestly, if you're honest, there's, it's like, hey, just go ahead and put a stick in my eye. Oh, that felt good. Put another stick in my eye. I mean, ministry can be that way. That's not, it just doesn't matter. When something begins burning in your heart, you have to do what you have to do. And that's true for every single believer. Every single believer, if we grasp what's going on in the Word. And so uh, I want to start right away with a scripture that I should read it every day. I probably read it at least once a week uh, since I've been about 12. This has been a scripture I keep reading. This is what made me fall in love with Jesus. This is what fires me up again when I just say, oh, the heck, with it. forget this whole thing. People are so messy, and I'm so screwed up. You know, I mean, I just, and then I read this, and I remember. Oh, this is why we do this thing. This is why Jesus came. This is what I'm supposed to do. Luke 4, verses 16 through 21. I'm going to read it out of the Message Bible. This is where Jesus, at the approximate age of 30, launched his adult ministry officially. And he did it, as usual, with an explosion. He pulls out this passage, says this. He came to Nazareth where he had been reared, and as he always did on the Sabbath, they were used to this, but they weren't used to what was going to happen today. As he always did on the Sabbath, he went to the meeting place, and when he stood up to read, he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it is written, God's Spirit is on me. He's chosen me to preach the gospel, the message of good news to the poor, sent me to announce pardon to prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the burdened and battered free, to announce this is God's year to act. And he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the assistant, and sat down. When a teacher, especially in the synagogue setting, reads a scroll and sits down, that means it's time for him to teach. They don't teach uh, in traditionally standing. They would sit to see it. So everybody expected a sermon. Every eye in the place was on him, intent. Then he started in. You have just heard Scripture make history. It came true just now in this place. And, of course, right after that, they wanted to kill him, wanted to throw him off a hill. Welcome to the ministry of Jesus. Welcome to the life of a Christian. Do you know that? This, Jesus launched with, um, by poking the bear big time, and he's still poking the bear. He's poking the bear in you, and he wants us to poke the bear wherever we go. I'm not talking about being obnoxious. I'm talking about rescuing people who need to be rescued, caring about people that other people would just as soon get rid of, put down, or you know, abuse. It's our calling. We are called to be that kind of people. We're called to be like Jesus. So to do the things listed in Luke 4, which if you check out the four Gospels, which are the four different eye views of the ministry of Jesus, if you check them out, 
Everything Jesus did fits into these categories. And to do that, to set people free from abuse, he had to confront the abuser. Otherwise, you're just putting a Band-Aid on something. It's radical. And what, he's called, what he called the 12 to do, in fact, all of his followers who went with him, he called them to do the same thing. He called them to do what he did, to follow him. Again, in three Gospels, if any man would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. One version knows us. It says, take up his cross daily and follow me. That's what being a Christian is. And uh, we don't just follow him in a church building. We follow those heels wherever they go. And he leads us. Now, Jesus made it clear that we are to view and interpret the law through his new lens of mercy and grace. That's why it was so radical when he said what he said. When you read this thing, this, this passage in Luke 4 is from Isaiah 61. It is one of the most revered scriptures in all of the Jewish scriptures. And for him to say, this has come to pass, that was reserved. That was reserved for the Messiah that they were praying to come. How dare this guy, we, you, we grew up with you. How dare you say this, that this has just come to pass. That's reserved for the Messiah when he comes to save us. They didn't get it. Because if, if you really want to get the impact of Jesus and his ministry and what he's calling you and I to do, I challenge you to grit your teeth, focus, take notes, and read the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus first. That's the book of the law. And it's radical to us. It sounds an awful lot like the rules of Al-Qaeda or of, of even worse organizations because it's very similar, guys. It really is. It was a do and don't thing, and it was very black and white, and the punishments were quick, most of them fatal. You know, we see uh, pictures of, uh, and videos, unfortunately, of... of uh, Women being uh, killed by stoning just in recent years in the Middle East. We get all upset, and then we turn to the Scriptures. I'm gonna, I won't have to turn to this, but if you recall, Jesus saved a woman in the middle of a legal execution publicly. It was legal. Even then, the Romans backed off and said, you can do things according to your law, kind of like what people are doing in the Middle East now, allowing extremists to go by Sharia law. And yeah, I said it, Sharia law. And so if they want to execute a woman caught in the act of adultery, they do it. We've seen it on video. That's what Jesus interrupted. He stepped right in the middle of it. Everything there was legal, signed, sealed, okay. And elders of the, I almost said church, elders of the religious institution were there saying, this is okay, and they had stones in their hand to help it happen. And Jesus interrupted that turned everything upside down. He said, you need to interpret what is in these scriptures by a law of love and mercy. This was what was coming. This was prophesied by the prophets of old. It is all the way in there. You just never saw it. There's a better law coming, the law of love and mercy and grace. Let's go on. Jesus knew about religious judgment personally. It's my opinion. We do not have... Um, proof of this, although some of the actions are taken up here. But, you know, Jesus' mother was pregnant before she was married through mysterious means. And 
they spent most of their time in villages, not in large cities, kind of like Alma and Van Buren and various other burgs you guys came from. How quick does a rumor fly through a community? Faster than Twitter. It really does. I mean, it's super fast. If, if grandma sneezes and has a, you know, a wardrobe malfunction, people on the far side of town know before she's even wiped her nose. I mean, it's just ridiculous how fast stuff goes. And in small towns, we keep track of relationships and we keep track of birth dates. We know when a baby's born and the first thing the wagging tongues do is go check the calendar. See, nine months back from there, was she married yet? Right? And then once the tails wag, it's like this is the closest thing to perpetual energy we've ever met. The tongues never stop. They yak, 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 yak. You could be 95 and say, did you know that you, you know, it's just amazing the rumors go. I'm convinced that Jesus, maybe the reason they moved, anyway, they were at different communities, but I'm convinced he grew up having the whispering going on around him that he was illegitimate. You know, nowadays we don't make a big deal of it. Back then... Oh, it was a big deal. You were scum of the earth for the rest of your life. Your children were condemned and your children's children. As long as they could pass the rumor and keep that snare and that black stain on your family, they would keep it rolling and make sure your family was knocked down a couple notches. You wouldn't get the promotions. You wouldn't get the places. You wouldn't get honored. Well, if you look at the life of Jesus and then go back, I mean, God the Father set it up so that on the human side, his mother's side, he had almost every major section of the law that, that separated people from the kingdom of God and from God's blessing. He made sure they were in the bloodline of Jesus on the human side. Prostitutes, uh, people of mixed ethnic heritage from lower class ethnicities that had committed some sin against um, the uh, Jewish nation maybe 10 generations before. I'm talking like Moabites and people like that. And I'm not going to go into that. I'm just going to simply say Jesus understood even on a personal level what it was like to be a less than stellar citizen in a community, even though he didn't do a thing to deserve it. He confronted religious judgment. I'm, I'm specifying religious because we can talk about it. How many of you have ever been uh, wounded in church? Raise your, well, you don't have to raise your hand. I'll raise mine because I have been. I have been. How many of you have ever been uh, the victim of judgment? And people use the Bible to support their judgment of you. Nobody's raising their hand. Well, a few did. Arnie, you raised your hand bravely, didn't you? Uh, you're not afraid to say it. Uh, it happens because we're people. People are people are people. And hurt people tend to hurt people. All kinds of stuff like that goes on. He confronted religious judgment with Mary Magdalene. You guys are familiar with Mary Magdalene. She was part of the company. Jesus, we know that he was accompanied by the 12, but we, sometimes we skip over the passages in, in the Gospels that tell us that a large group accompanied Jesus. And um, one of the most faithful groups that we see follow him all the way to the cross was the group of women who actually financed his ministry. 
And one of those group of women that traveled with them and supported and helped the whole ministry was Mary Magdalene. She was with the mother of Jesus, one of the few women named that stuck with Jesus all the way through his passion, all the way through his suffering from the beginning to his death on the cross. Mary Magdalene was there, but she was a cursed woman who could have been legally executed at any point because she was a prostitute or an adulterer. It goes on. They, they met in the house of Simon the leper. If you check it out, it's also Simon the Pharisee or former Pharisee. Somehow he came into leprosy in his life. That meant they were meeting in his house, but Simon himself could never, ever again enter the temple in Jerusalem. He shouldn't have even been in his house. Um, Jesus healed lepers. Lepers were the um, HIV, AIDS victims, the ones who deserve it, supposedly. And you just didn't, you didn't, you stayed away from them. You didn't touch them. You didn't go close to them. You just, you made them, you, you passed laws that said they had to stay away. Jesus would touch them before he healed them. And for a holy man, for a teacher of the law, that was totally unacceptable. It would instantly, if it didn't kill you, it would make you unclean. Jesus, I think, purposely touched them because it was taboo. He did it. He touched them first. And then he would heal them supernaturally. He touched funeral bills. You guys remember the widow of Nain and uh, other instances where he would stop funerals. And that, that wasn't just it. He would touch the dead body. That's a no-no for a Jewish leader. He did that, and then he would raise him from the dead. Uh, he dealt with prostitutes. He dealt with tax collectors. We'll talk about them tax collectors here in just a minute. I love the fact that he healed a man with a withered hand. We know this ha took place in a synagogue, even if it didn't say it did, because people who had any kind of, um, like a withered limb or uh, any kind of problem like that weren't even allowed in a temple. If you were flawed physically, you could not go in the temple of God or the temple of Herod in Jerusalem. You were banned. That's why we have that one instance outside the gate, beautiful, when the blind man who was blind from birth was begging in the book of Acts and Peter and John greet him. He's outside for a reason. He had never stepped foot or had even been carried into that building because he was banned for life. He was flawed. He was maimed. So therefore, he's a second-class citizen. And somehow, all the blessings in favor of God weren't available to him because of something he had no control over. And I'm very thankful that God dealt with that through the name of Jesus. I'm saying all this to let you know Jesus was incredibly politically, spiritually incorrect. And he did it on purpose. I love this about him. He was just, he was Jesus. He loved people, but he was in your face for hypocrisy. And he was in your face. If somebody was down and out, he was there. He made a difference. It was his life and it cost him his life. But he got his life back again. And he gave his life to us. One of the guys that I like to focus on 
is Matthew. You guys all read Matthew's gospel, right? It's the very first book in the New Testament. I've read, how many of you read Matthew? Good, you read the book of a sinner. Why did you believe a thing that guy says? Do you know what Matthew, I'll tell you where, we're not going to read the scripture. In Matthew 9, if you look through verses 9 through 13, you'll find out that Jesus found Matthew, perhaps called Levi, but we know he, it says right there, he found Matthew sitting at a tax collector's table. And I found one source, I'll read it what it says to you, it says that um, he belonged to a class of Jewish tax collectors called Moksa, and they extorted money from travelers. That was their specialty crooked as crooked can be. And that's what they did. And they were hated. Tell you something about tax collectors in general. In Jesus' day, they were despised, regarded as traitors to their own people because the people they worked for um, were partially the captors and the, the cheating government of the time. These guys were on the take and they usually preyed on their own people. So they were traitors. Their money was considered unclean, so unclean that when a, a observant Jew would pay the tax, even if they were owed money back, they didn't ask for the change, even if it was a lot of money. They did not want to touch money that one of these guys, Matthew, touched. And we're reading his book like it's special. He's obviously a second-class guy. In fact, the money from Matthew was so unclean, it would not be accepted for a tithe in the temple. It was banned. The money wasn't good enough. It was tainted. They actually were considered so despised, they refused to accept their testimony in court. And these guys were the lowest of the low. A good Jew wouldn't even associate with a publican. It's another word for a tax collector in private life. So what does Jesus do? Invites him to join his band and go touring with him. And that's in your face stuff, isn't it? That's crossing the line. These guys were the scum of the earth. And, and Jesus just felt like his, his merry band of men wasn't complete without scum of the earth. I love it. I love the way Jesus says, may not be good enough for you, but he's exactly the one I need. Some of you in here can relate. <laughs> Some of you are here, yeah, he said that to me too. We should all say that. I love this because, I, well, I love this until I get to certain parts. I love this until I start seeing that this is how Jesus wants to treat others. He wants us to be this way. He doesn't only want us to receive the, the reckless, unending love of God. He wants us to give the reckless, never-ending, outrageous love of God to other people continuously, over and over, not just one time. He wants it to be our lifestyle. He does not want us to follow the tack of the folks in his day who made a living judging other people because they weren't as good as they were. They didn't qualify. I remember it's interesting to me that some of this research never came out. There was a, 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 a spiritual leader that was accused for receiving money from a, a guy that, that I think he ran gambling places or something. They made the headlines a few years ago. But I don't even know if the guy who received this worthy talking about. All I know is it just kind of struck me um, 
You know, in scriptures, I don't see this. Anyway, let's go on. Don't want to get lost here. Do you remember the two highest laws of God? You should love God, and we have this, the whole list of how we love God, and then we say love your neighbors yourself. And then what follows in one of the Gospels is a question, well, um, who is my neighbor? It's worthy uh, of reading this, and this is the passage that we read starting uh, this message today, and I want to read that again. And so given what we're talking about, think about this. This is from Luke 10, verses 25 through 37 in the Message Bible. Just kind of let this jar you a little bit and think about us today. Put yourself in some of these situations. You're going to, to do this, you're going to have to change stuff. You ever, sometimes metaphors don't fit perfectly. You know, a metaphor is saying one thing that's supposed to match something else in your real life. And the problem comes if they don't seem to match because you have to juggle stuff around. Well, almost everything Jesus says is this way. You have to turn your world upside down to make it work because the good guys are the bad guys and the bad guys are the good guys. The religious leaders very often are the hypocrites in his stories. Isn't that weird? The churchgoers are the pain in the cooties here. So we need to see what's going on. This is what he's doing. Luke 10, 25 through 37. Just then a religion scholar stood up with a question to test Jesus. He was a ringer. He was set there on purpose to do this, but there was something in his heart. He wanted to do something a little bit more. It says, so then a religion scholar stood up with a question to test Jesus. Teacher, what do I need to get eternal life? He answered, what's written in God's law? Oh, that's a good proper answer. What's written in Deuteronomy and Leviticus? How do you interpret it? Jesus is asking him. Interpretation, you guys, is everything. He said that you love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and muscle and intelligence, and that you love your neighbor as well as you do yourself. Jesus said, good answer. Do it, and you'll live. Looking for a loophole. Oh, yeah, that, we should, you know, we, should, we could have said first church of the loophole. That would draw a lot of people in. Okay, looking for the loophole, he asked, and just how would you define neighbor? He's looking for a but. I was talking with Pastor Devin about someone he was listening to, a very controversial speaker who was talking about love, and he said, everything in the Scriptures, everything about the kingdom is summed up in love. But you, this passage right here, love the Lord and love your neighbor. But, and this guy was saying, the problem is every single believer you run into will want to put a but on the end. But you don't do it for these people. But oh, we have limitations to how far love will go. And this guy's saying, no, no limitations. Do it like God said, do it. And when you start looking at the way Jesus did things, you see that he went way past the buts. Let's go on with this thing, because he does a great job here telling him. Jesus answered by telling a story. Beware the stories of Jesus. They always have fish hooks in them. They're going to go for your heart and show any kind of hypocrisy that's lingering there. And that's, I'll start with myself. Here he goes. There was once a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. First of all, that was a rough place to go. On the way, he was attacked by robbers. He took his clothes, they beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road. A priest, the preacher. 
But when he saw him, he angled across to the other side because no good preacher is going to be defiled by that kind of stuff. Who knows? He could be a Samaritan. I'm not going to touch this guy. Ooh, there's blood. Ew, unclean. Not going to mess with that stuff. Well, maybe he has a chance because next he has the next level. This guy may not be a preacher, but he's a religious class. He's a church staffer, okay? Okay, luckily, let's see, where is it? Then a Levite religious man. The Levites were the tribes set apart among the 12 tribes. They were to work full time in the house of God, in the temple, or before that, working in the, the tabernacle. Their whole point was to serve. They got their salary because they work full-time. They were full-time religious workers. This guy, he's definitely going to help him. He also avoided the injured man. Uh-oh. We're down to the uh, bottom of the barrel now. A Samaritan. Hmm. Wrong race. Wrong religion. They were heretics. The Samaritans were heretics. They set up a different place to worship Jehovah than Jerusalem. Heresy. A Samaritan traveling the road came on him, and when he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. I wonder if maybe a little of it is this guy had scars too. I don't know. He gave him first aid, disinfecting, bandaging his wounds, and he lifted him onto his own donkey. Ooh, he put a bloody guy in his donkey, like putting him into your Honda. Led him to an inn and made him comfortable. In the morning, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take good care of him. Would you not only help somebody who had been mugged, get their blood all over your car, put them in a hotel room, allow your name to be attached to the person, and then pay for their hotel, assuming that... Well, never mind. Let's go on. If it costs any more, put it on my bill. An open tab? You've got to be kidding me. I'll pay you on my way back. Jesus says, what do you think? Which of the three became a neighbor to the man attacked by robbers? And the religion scholar said, the one who treated him kindly. Totally unaware, he had just put his head in the bear trap. Jesus said, go and do the same. Not what he wanted to hear. You just told me to do what a stinking Samaritan did? You've got to be out of your mind. You have just slapped me in the face because I am one of those guys that passed by the guy. Jesus, I love this guy. I love the way Jesus wins every debate. I love that. There's something in me that really likes that. Something hypocritical. Anyway, we'll keep moving. It was and it is time for mercy to triumph over judgment in the church. Um, Pastor Zach did a fabulous job last week ministering, and he brought this scripture up in his message, and it really touched me. His whole message was just riveting to me. I encourage you guys to make use on the website, make use of the of thing where all the messages are there. You have, <clears throat> you have enough living food waiting for you, you can survive a Holocaust. I mean, you can go there, you can have fresh food from the Lord and His Word all the time, anytime, mobile devices, everything. So I encourage you to go check out Zach's message last week. It was very powerful. Uh, or was that two weeks ago? Two weeks ago? Two weeks ago. Uh, Pastor Devin preached last week. It's good, too. You might want to check that out. 
I got to get out of that one quick. I want to read this message from James. I told Pastor Devin, I was going to mix Jesus and James together, deadly combination. You guys know James, right? The brother of Jesus. These guys must have, uh, anyway, James was really irritating. There were some people did not want James to be put in the, the holy canon of the scriptures because number one, he's so stinking Jewish for people who are prejudiced. And number two, he is in your face all the time about doing good deeds. Oh, this guy's a pain. Let's read about what he has to say. James 2, verses 12 through 17. Talk and act like a person expecting to be judged by the rule that sets us free. For if you refuse to act kindly, you can hardly expect to be treated kindly. Kind mercy wins over harsh judgment every time. How many of you have ever been judged harshly? Quick judgment and uh, execution shortly after. I mean, it's just rough stuff. Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come up on an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved and say, good morning, friend, be clothed in Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? Whoa, now you know why James is so beloved around the world. Because he nails us. He nails us. He makes church uncomfortable once again. The thing about following Jesus, the 12 disciples never knew what was coming next. With Jesus, one minute you'd be safely sort of sitting on a hillside receiving the greatest sermon ever preached. Isn't this great teaching? Except what he's saying is really a pain. You know, the kingdom of God is. And he starts naming all these people that I never thought were part of the kingdom. Blessed are the poor. Um, the poor are always begging for, for stuff in the city streets. I just avoid them. I, just go, I go by the nice neighborhoods. Uh, this, this is really difficult stuff. It brings to mind that as I began to grow in the Lord, I remember when I first moved to Fort Smith, I felt like a magnet for weird. I collected friends. I thought I collected friends that were really different. And uh, I think what happened is they collect friends that were really different and found me. But I remember one guy, his name was Big Charlie. And Big Charlie used to sell drugs in Watts. Do you guys know where Watts is in L.A.? Watts burned. They had a big fire in Watts. It was race riots, and it was a really rough time, especially for the residents who couldn't get out of Watts. They were stuck there. He used to deal drugs from the center of Watts in a, from his family home. He lived with his mother. And uh, his mother was our head intercessor at one church where we were pastoring and perhaps one of the greatest prayer warriors I ever met in my life. She used to be a medium you know, fortune teller before she came to the Lord. All these people we, we attracted. Anyway, she was fabulous. But anyway, Big Charlie was huge. He was a biker type guy. He was white and he was selling in the middle of Watts, 
which is a primarily black portion of a very depressed, difficult place to live. Very few jobs available, lots of violence, just a lot of despair and pain then and now. But he used to be in the center of Watts dealing drugs through razor wire with Doberman pinchers behind him. I mean, the guy was really not a wonderful, sterling person. And I found him in Fort Smith. And uh, he came to the Lord barely, hanging on by his fingernails because he still looked like a biker. He still had a hot temper and he still looked like he could kill you with a look. And so Big Charlie occupied hours of my time debating because he also liked to argue like crazy. I mean, he just drove me nuts. But I'd talk with him by the hour because I was single then. So I could talk to four in the morning with him and in Bolivia, I'd try and drive home. And Charlie stuck with me for years. It was really embarrassing going into places. And people thought we were going to rob. Everywhere we went, they thought we were going to rob them. There's this little skinny guy walking in. And then there's big Charlie with a big beard. Looks like a biker who's hungry and needs money for a fix. I mean, he was something else. And this is in the days of, of heroin and LSD rather than, than meth. Meth didn't exist in a big way at that time. Charlie did receive the Lord and walk with the Lord. He was just one. When we were in Pennsylvania, we had a guy named Jamie who had green hair. That, that, those days were the days of mosh pits and stuff. He had green hair, um, body piercings, and chains that kind of almost dragged on the floor when he walked. But whenever they started worship, he liked to dance. He'd spin, and he was like, I call it helicopter dance, you know, and I'm not going to do it. But he uh, did that. His chains would go out and kind of clear the way for him. I have a hunch he did that from mosh pit days. I don't know. But I discovered that Jamie had the sweetest heart of anybody I had met up to that point. I've since met a whole church full of them. But I loved Jamie Bean. And ironically, I met him in a Mennonite church. (laughs) Can you imagine Mennonites with Jamie? That church is where Pastor Devin and Nisa ministered just uh, last week. Precious place. Love the Lord the flow in the spirit, but they've always had an open heart for the unlovely and the outcast. And uh, that's the heart of Jesus. I want to bring this to a close. Who have you rescued lately? One thing that's burned into my memory is the night during a service uh, in this church, not this church building, but in our old previous building, where a guy came in and uh, we kind of uh, were on the alert. The ushers were on the alert. This guy had threatened to kill me. He had threatened to kill Arnie and he had threatened a state trooper to kill him because it's at different points. We were involved in counseling uh, his wife before they divorced. And uh, he had a serious drug problem. I mean, it was for him, it just seemed virtually uncontrollable. And he came in, and we didn't know if he was going to fight or what was going to happen. But he ran to the altar. The power of the Spirit was so thick and heavy. And he ran to the altar in tears. And my wife was the first to jump up. And she ran to him and ministered to him that night. And he just had a meeting with God. Just changed him. And he passed away, I think, two weeks later. And I saw that night, I saw the outrageous, never-ending 
reckless love of God save a guy who had no hope whatsoever. And I'm going to see him face to face. And I rejoice in that. But this guy threatened us. He meant it too. But I'm so thankful that is the God we serve. So my, my final word to you is, you and I are called to live that way. We're called to reach out to people, to reach out to the unlovely, and to make a difference. We're supposed to not only receive the reckless love of God, we're to give the reckless love. Not once, not twice, but every day of our lives. This week, you may well have a chance to be a lifeline. Not throw one, to be a lifeline to somebody in your family, somebody you don't even know. Be led by the Spirit. This is your time to stand up and be counted. We need to be a church that cares. Yeah, it will cost us. Yeah, it will be inconvenient. Absolutely guaranteed it will be inconvenient. It will take supernatural grace and ability to pull it off. That's the definition of being a disciple of Christ. You lean on God to do what you cannot do in your own strength or ability. That's my challenge. If you guys will stand.